to ArtsCast Nebraska, a podcast about the creative activities and research of the faculty and alumni of the Hickson Lead College of Fine and Performing Arts at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Chris Marks, Associate Dean of the College, and it's my privilege to share with you these conversations about the fascinating work that our faculty and alumni do in the Fine and Performing Arts. In this episode, I speak with Katie Anania, an assistant professor in art history. She discusses her research on drawing as an art medium, as well as how the arts, and art history in particular, can be an integral part of scientific research. She describes her research as environmental art history. I wanted to know how this differs from more traditional art history, so I began by asking her for more information. Environmental art history um, kind of looks at the object as having come from a lot of different places, as related to lots of different kinds of supply chains. You know, for instance, um, it, you look at a sculpture as it, that's made of wood as something that's sourced from certain kinds of wood. And this has, of course, become a popular subject to think about in this age where um, there's a lot of anxiety and apprehension about the environment at large mm-hmm. as a broader concept. Mm-hmm. But my work actually investigates um, this moment in the 20th century where the environment became codified as something that we should preserve, something was that was in trouble. So in terms of its historical scope, um, that's where I sort of begin, is in the moment after World War II where you have two things happening, this enormous surging consumer society and artists making all kinds of gestures to try and undermine those mandates to consume by using materials that could be thrown away, by making artworks that could be set up and then very quickly taken down again, sometimes even thrown away afterwards with no trace remaining, or even works that um, exist just as documentation. And so I'm very interested in the way that an, uh, an art, an artwork kind of stands as a representation of all of these different kinds of materials coming together and mm-hmm. and also the way that we ev- that we eventually become conscious of that in our mm-hmm. knowledge systems and thinking systems. Katie's current book project entitled Out of Paper: Drawing, Environment and the Body in 1960s America grows from this interest in the environment and the process of making art. I asked her to tell me more about this project. My current book is about this new surge of interest that artists took in the 60s in drawing and works on paper. And so in that book, I do a lot of more nuanced research about um, why paper became so interesting at this moment when you have the burgeoning environmentalist movement. It started just as a really simple curiosity that I had about art of the 60s, which is that a lot of it, um, especially in the later 60s, made drawings central to its display strategies. Um, artists basically began in this period um, exhibiting drawings as finished works instead of as a sort of piece of an ongoing work that is then fully finished and exhibited in a museum or gallery. So I really wanted to know why. And 
you know, it turns out that the appeal, especially in the 1960s, which is such a turbulent decade, you know, drawing was interesting because paper was so close to everything was part of all of the cycles of life that they saw in the city. So you would walk outside and see piles of trash in your neighborhood. You might make work next to a, um, a pulp factory mm-hmm. that, uh, sh- you know, shredded rags, uh, and plant pulp mm-hmm. into and made it into the first formulations of paper. So, um, a lot of the, this new interest was about investigating all of the different supply chains and material streams instead of just looking at something as a product mm. coming to you ready-made. One of Katie's recent articles called Walk With Me is about the artist William Anastasi. As a musician, I was fascinated with the fact that Anastasi was good friends with John Cage, who was a very influential avant-garde composer. I asked her about Anastasi, his work, and his friendship with Cage. His friendship with John Cage developed around their habit of going to um, see each other every day to play chess. And so in the afternoons, um, Anastasi would take the train uptown to 176th Street um, in uh, to Cage's apartment to have chess and to have a game of chess. And so he also began taking paper with him. Um, and as Anastasia on the train would balance a sheet of paper on a drawing board on his lap, close his eyes. He'd eventually do this assisted with firing range headphones so he couldn't even oh, hear wow. and hold a pencil to a sheet of paper. And with as little interference from his own body and mind as possible would allow the movements of the train to make the drawing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there are a lot of investigations about the limits of especially um, what constituted actually the artist <laughs> and mm-hmm. what kinds of things the artist should be doing to make this thing that we call art. And so the um, removal of all these decisions and the giving over of the decisions um, to the train and the contours mm-hmm. of one's body responding to the environment um, – really uh, was very Cajun. Yes, it's just like Cage. <laughs> yeah. The environment becomes the music, and, mm-hmm. the, and the artist is is more of a, a conduit for that in yeah. a way. Interesting. So the train is the artist in this case. <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely a collaborator, and yeah. um, Anastasi used that word quite a lot. Um, this I, I wrote that essay for um, a collection of articles on amateurism. So, you know, the whole article is about um, this kind of moment in the United States where anyone could and should have the freedom to become an artist and to make something and any space that you were lucky enough to to turn toward and notice could provide all of the things that you needed to make work. It was such a, it was a really exciting kind of time. And what became of those drawings? Were they exhibited or did people take them seriously? What was mm-hmm. the what was the reception of them? So this is one of the uh, things that my book investigates as well is, okay, who is, who is becoming interested in these drawings? Exactly what channels are they circulating through? Are they showing always in galleries? Who's buying them? And it turns out that um, these drawings were so unique and new and provisional and conceptual that they attracted a lot of initial attention from gallerists as, you know, these um, new gestures often do. 
And then I think seeing something that's made on paper that almost anyone can do that is somehow more honest and true to someone's, a direct representation of someone's practice becomes more appealing in this moment where people kind of stop trusting top-down authoritative Mm. statements. Mm. And I should mention too, actually, as you know, since this book is sort of a, um, uses a feminist framework to look at drawings, that the women who made mounds and masses of drawings and plans were not treated in the same way as visionaries as the male artists with gallery representation were. Mm-hmm. Um, there were Carolee Schneeman, who's in my book, uh, was often criticized for her, for the denseness of her product, for the oversharing, for the mess that she brought to her works and exhibition ideas. So um, there's definitely a an uneven reception of work by men. There's this myth that when men produce a lot, a lot of ideas, it's an evidence of density of thought versus when women do it, it's oversharing. And it's not subtle at all. <laughs> and you can, you can see it in the criticisms and, um, artists recall this with great clarity in the interviews I've done with them. Um, you know, Schneeman always said, no one was ever interested in my drawings. I just kept them at home. I kept them in drawers. I had, she had an enormous archive at the end of her career that was eventually sent to the Getty Research Center in Los Angeles. And it's mostly because they didn't have the same kind of institutional circulation that an artist like Rauschenberg would have gotten. I mean, if you walk over to the Sheldon Museum of Art, we have beautiful prints and works on paper by Robert Rauschenberg, who's a 1960s artist in the same milieu. So it's simp- I think it simply has to do with that we have a different history of thinking about thoughts and ideas and and their and their density b- between one gender and another. Well, one of your other recent articles, Quick Studies, uh, talks about a drawing manual, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about that and and what you see in that. So this was a delightful project. And this was a situation where um, as a historian, you often find that you go to your research centers, museums, archives, looking for a certain thing, and then you're completely surprised because mm-hmm. something else pops up. Mm-hmm. So I went to the Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian um, in Washington, D.C. The drawing manual that I went to investigate was called The Natural Way to Draw by Kimon Nicolaitis. And it was written by a professor at the Art Students League in New York City, um, and it was based on his experiences in the classroom. And uh, the focus of the book was that artists should, instead of um, concentrating on their vision so much, uh, that they should try to feel the thing in front of them as they drew it. And he had all kinds of inventive exercises that he designed. He uh, asked artists to draw facing away from the figure model while they were in class and just listen to it. Wow. He was the person who pioneered the... Um, 30-second exercise drawing, these gesture drawings, as they're called, where you just, like, look at uh, a person moving, and you try to mimic their gestures very Mm. quickly. So, of course, this was a very modern, intuitive, um, and very, and messy, and mistake-laden 
method. And so I was, I, it, I, this was really interesting. All of my 1960s artists had cited this book. So I was really uh, interested. And then um, I went into the archives and the archive had come from the editor of this book. She had saved all of this, um, all of this professor's materials because he had died pretty young and she had helped him edit this book toward the end of his life and she had gotten it posthumously published. And the student of his was dedicated. She took all of his classes and she was also a lesbian. Um, and this was in 1930s New York City. And so I, this became really interesting because I noticed that in her letters, she and her partner vacationed with this teacher uh, in New Hampshire. They did, uh, he designed drawing exercises for them. Um, the partner appears in these drawings and they're photographed together. So this became a project about queering archival research and the, the ways that sometimes queer histories are exactly like this. They're only found when you start searching through all of these things. They're rarely mentioned explicitly because, of course, this was prior to um, the Stonewall riots, mm -hmm. which really consolidated queer identity in the United States quite a bit. And so um, it turns out that, you know, some of these drawing exercises are the thing that allowed this student, Mamie Harmon was her name, to... I mean, essentially fold her partner into her life by just drawing all these casual pictures of her. So, I mean, I've, I've been interested in lesbian drawing for a long time. Um, there are lots of histories of, uh, people's partners modeling for them. And then, it, you know, so the, then the resulting drawings, we have to read them in a little bit of a different way. So, um, this was a, a project about, surprises really yeah you've just uh become part of a grant from the national science foundation on ecological stoichiometry yes so tell me what on earth is an art historian doing as part of a an nsf funded mm -hmm. ecological grant in investigating all of these material media histories, um, especially in the 60s and 70s, where artists often um, are very critical of the way that certain kinds of information is articulated and disseminated. Um, I've become very interested in the ideas, uh, in the idea in general of visualizing crises, how artists do it, and then how the documents that we imagine as scientific also do it through graphs, charts, and so on. Mm -hmm. It turns out that these were the very tools that artists in the 60s and 70s really liked to use um, to kind of push back against the myth that um, communicating an idea happens only one way. I am just extremely interested in critical approaches to information and how it looks, and how it makes people feel, and how it's used in certain moments to make people feel. So um, I ha I was invited uh, by uh, Jessica Corman, who is a water scientist here at UNL, to collaborate with her 
on a project that she knew was going to involve other scientists who worked with different types of data and visualized it in a totally different way. Um, and I, and Jessica Corman's idea was to organize a large database of facts and figures uh, that documented the changes, the chemical changes in water's composition over time. And where this gets really difficult is that if you have lots of scientists using lots of different types of data, it's hard to standardize in what would be a really useful giant database of information for inland lakes and streams all over the United States. So um, I was invited to uh, help mediate and moderate conversations between scientists about how they use information, how they visualize it, uh, and also organize um, workshops with between artists and scientists so that the artists help the scientists to generate ideas on how to merge their data. What excites me is that actually there are modern and contemporary artists who've been also using data creatively in different ways for over a hundred years. And so the history of um, data visualization is much longer than we tend to think it is. Sure. And, and artists have contributed to it so fruitfully. How do you hope best to influence this? And what, what's the outcome that you hope to have as, as your part, part of your role in this? I think I would like not just to insert artists and art history as something that will help scientists get the job done, you know, because artists tend to be really creative at visualization. And so this could be a question of just strict problem solving, but I'd like to complicate it, I think, because my own history with artists' use of data and materials is that they tend to do it very critically. And so I think there's an opportunity to open these windows into critical approaches to science, um, examining the things that data accidentally overemphasizes, um, the gaps and holes in scientific research and how to be more frank and productive about those things. I mean, I, I think as someone who looks at especially queer feminist histories um, and the histories of people who are excluded from typical, you know, um, mainstream scientific discourses and often have their own ways of talking and conceptualizing about facts. I'd like to insert, you know, the idea that some of these things are a lot more complex and more situated um, and could be, could be visualized in a way that is frank about that fact that's honest about it i think people tend to think about artists as gloss or decoration um or you know the the kind of an artist or a, a musician might be the kind of thinker that makes something pretty for the public mm. i think that asking scientists to adapt to the language and the thinking styles of makers is often a really important way to kind of undermine what we think we know and, and affirm too that um, artists' ideas are constitutive. You know, they're not just additive. They're not, hey, let's, let's make a picture of how phosphorus runoff um, from fertilizer mm -hmm. is becoming a real problem in lakes and rivers that actually 
the way that we visualize and express something and use language and pictures to do it is really everything. So um, I hope that it actually makes art design questions of like art and design history too really central to knowledge formation, especially in the sciences. Mm-hmm. For more information about Katie and Anania's research, check out our show notes for links. And keep your eyes open for how artists and makers everywhere can change scientific research and discovery. You've been listening to ArtsCast Nebraska, a podcast production of the Hickson Lead College of Fine and Performing Arts at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. This episode was recorded and edited by me, Chris Marks, with technical assistance from Jeff O'Brien at the Johnny Carson Center for Emerging Media Arts. Special thanks to Kathy Anderson and Ella Durham. For more information about the college, please visit arts.unl.edu. Thank you for listening, and remember to support the arts. Mm -hmm.